Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters and today we'll look into a number of stories and issues in the news. We will begin with the release by the House Select Committee investigating January the 6th of more texts from Fox News' Sean Hannity to then White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows, along with a request that Hannity appear before the committee. The text exposed the glaring gap between Hannity's private concerns that Trump is blowing it by insisting he won the election and Hannity's public echoing of Trump's stop the steal lies on Fox every night. Even Hannity apparently could not get through to this sick man whose pathetic ego could not handle his electoral defeat, so instead Trump's pathological narcissism demanded an alternative reality. Since Trump would not listen to Hannity's advice that he retire to Mar-a-Lago and lick his wounds, he turned to his lunatic fringe of camp followers like the My Pillow guy, Sidney Powell and Rudy Giuliani, etc. Joining us to discuss the committee's request to Hannity to answer questions about his discussions with Trump on January the 10th is Aaron Rupa, who until recently was the Associate Editor of Politics and Policy at Vox and is now an independent journalist covering U.S. politics and media. He's the author of Public Notice, a newsletter which you can subscribe to at aaronrupa.substack.com, where his latest article is What We Learned from the Hannity Text Released by the January 6th Committee. Then we'll examine the 14.3 campaign that aims to bar all January the 6th insurrectionists, including Trump, from future public office and speak with the leader of the campaign at 14.3.org, John Bonifaz, the co-founder and president of Free Speech for People, who previously served as executive director of the Gen- and general counsel of the National Voting Rights Institute and as the legal director of Voter Action. A distinguished attorney has been at the forefront of key voting rights battles across the country for more than two decades, and he joins us to discuss Merrick Garland's press conference today and how the DOJ's reluctance to call the coup attempt an insurrection and charge its leaders and planners with sedition does not stop state officials from using the 14th Amendment to bar insurrectionists from future public office. Then finally, with Senator McConnell announcing today that, quote, it is worth discussing reforming the antiquated Electoral Count Act, we will speak with Richard Hassan, the Chancellor's Professor of Law and Political Science at the University of California, Irvine. He's a nationally recognized expert in election law and campaign finance regulations and is co-author of the leading case books on election law and the author of a number of books, including The Voting Wars, Plutocrats United, The Justice of Contradictions and Election Meltdown. His forthcoming book is Cheap Speech, How Disinformation Poisons Our Politics and How to Cure It. And we'll discuss his concern that we face a serious risk that American democracy as we know it will come to an end in 2024. But urgent action is not happening. And before we go to our first guest, in order to be free of any association with medical fraud and political fiction... I recently resigned from KPFK, Pacifica's Los Angeles station. So background briefing now is completely independent and remains commercial-free, corporate-free, but relies entirely on your support to keep providing you with the daily briefing, which is free to the public. To those of you who can support us for as little as $5 a month, we hope that you become subscribers by making a tax-deductible donation to our non-profit foundation, the Public Truth Media Foundation, at publictruthmedia.org 
or at backgroundbriefing.org slash donate. And thank you for keeping us on the air on a growing number of radio stations across the country and online as we continue to build a reality-based community in post-truth America at this critical time when we must engage fully in the political warfare battles underway as the next few years will decide the fate and future of American democracy itself. And joining us now is Aaron Rupa, who's until recently was the Associate Editor for Politics and Policy at Vox and is now an independent journalist covering U.S. politics and media. He is the author of Public Notice, a newsletter which you can subscribe to at aaronrupa.substack.com, where his latest article is What We Learned from the Hannity Text Released by the January 6th Committee. Welcome to Background Briefing, Aaron Rupa. Good to talk to you again, Ian. Well, thanks for joining us. And of course, it's no secret that Fox News is the propaganda outlet for the Republican Party and particularly the Trump GOP, which is unfortunately the fact of the matter as we speak, um, that Trump controls the GOP with a kind of cult-like grip on all Republicans, including his devotees, along with those that privately hate him, like Mitch McConnell. So that in itself is an amazing situation. But what these texts released by the select committee between Sean Hannity of Fox and Mark Meadows and also apparently Trump himself, although those, they weren't released, obviously, they don't have those, but at least he referred to his conversations with Trump, indicate that there's a big gap between what Hannity says on the air and what he's privately saying to both Trump and Meadows so are we to conclude that there's some kind of rigid editorial control there at Fox where their anchors literally have to spew the most rabid propaganda and they can't be in any way nuanced? I think it's actually kind of the opposite in the sense that, um, you know, I think Hannity and Tucker Carlson and to a lesser extent, Laura Ingram, um, are so popular with their viewers and have such a large base of viewership that my sense, and you know, I don't, I don't know this to be a fact, but this is just my sense as a viewer, both of their show and of American politics more broadly, um, is that they basically, you know, are able to kind of get away with murder, so to speak, because, um, you know, Fox values uh, the viewers that they bring in and their audience more than they do having any sort of journalistic integrity. And, you know, as you mentioned in the open, Ian, Obviously, we've known for years now that Hannity had a huge conflict of interest when he was talking about Trump. Um, you know, Hannity literally appeared on stage at a Trump rally in 2018. He, you know, shared a lawyer with Trump. They were both, um, you know, retaining the services of Michael Cohen, uh, which came up during the first impeachment trial. And so you know, none of that part of it is new. But, you know, as you kind of alluded to what these texts uh, teach us that we didn't know previously is that you know Hannity uh, certainly seemed to have foreknowledge of what was going to happen on January 6th and privately was advising Trump or at least uh, Mark Meadows according to these text messages that you know that basically to cool it on these attempts to overthrow the election that Trump should just go to Florida and sort of gracefully transition into the next phase of his political career and obviously Trump didn't take that advice but as you mentioned, at the same time that Hannity was sending these texts to Mark Meadows, he was going on the air and saying that there should be a redo of the election and uh, trying to blame Antifa, you know, for the, the insurrection after it occurred. And so, yes, there's an embarrassing disconnect here for Hannity between what he was saying 
privately to Mark Meadows and what he was saying publicly on his show that I think reflects a real lack of integrity on his part. And so I wasn't surprised that, you know, after this story broke yesterday afternoon with the January 6th committee, um, you know, asking for Hannity's cooperation and, and releasing some of these text messages kind of to, I think, partially to embarrass him, but also to indicate that they have receipts for all of these claims that they're making. Um, you know, he t- completely ignored this story during his show. He never mentioned his text messages. He never mentioned um, the January 6th committee investigation. And so, you know, we'll see if that changes tonight. Uh, but I thought that was kind of a notable uh, omission on Hannity's part, that he didn't even really try to to take this on, that he opted just for completely ignoring it. But just on the surface, the conclusion you, you can make, and again, that's, it's no great revelation, that this guy is a propagandist. He knows what he's speaking when he riles up his audience with lies is not true. At least it doesn't fit with the more kind of sage advice that he's trying to give to Trump, who, who he's trying to you know, help Trump help himself, and Trump is obviously incapable of doing that because it's all about his wounded ego. That's the extraordinary part of it. I mean, this is more something for psychiatrists to look at in terms of what motivates Trump. And in fact, on January the 10th, four days after the Capitol attack, Hannity texted White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows, and this is what he wrote. It's in your article that I'm reading from. Guys, we have a clear path to land the plane in nine days. He can't mention the election ever again, ever. I did not have a good call with him today, and worse, I'm not sure what is left to do or say, and I don't feel like it's truly understood. Ideas? And then we're asking for any ideas? I mean, it's clear that you can't, <laughs> that even Hannity couldn't reach Trump, that Trump is in his own world. And even on the very day after everybody had pleaded with him, including his own daughter and others, and even some of the White House staff had threatened to resign, uh, etc. He goes on television after he finally agrees to try and defuse the situation and talks about uh, how this is the, the most vicious thing that ever happened and you've all been ripped off and your, your hopes and dreams have been shattered and they've stolen this election. I mean, it's all about him. So that, I think, is something that's really worth revealing. Do you think the committee can venture into psychiatry? Well, I don't know if they really need to get into psychiatry. I mean, the the thing that really jumped out to me with the January 10 text that you mentioned where uh, Hannity is lamenting, you know, it almost sounds like Trump, you know, needs an intervention at this point because uh, Hannity talked to him on the phone and, um, you know, he wouldn't stop talking about the election and nothing that he said could get through to him. And, you know, the timeline of that, I think, is kind of interesting because we sort of think of January 6th as kind of being the end, in a way, of this attempt to overthrow the election, that they made this big attempt when the certification was occurring. And when that failed, everybody kind of moved on. But, you know, the thing that that brought back to mind for me was that, you know, if you recall, as late as January 15th, you know, so just five days before the inauguration, that was when uh, my pillow guy, Mike Lindell, made his infamous trip to the White House where he was photographed um, after or during his meeting with Trump uh, with a notepad that said um, a a photographer was able to capture an image of his notes. And while it isn't clear what the entirety of it said, you could see that part of it said, quote, martial law, if necessary, end quote. And so, um, you know, what Hannity's text kind of seems to hint at is that there were still 
these schemes going on uh, behind the scenes, you know, even at a very late date where Trump apparently was still brooding over the fact that his attempt to, you know, basically seize power failed. And, you know, there might have been um, other plans that he was thinking about, which never came to fruition. And so um, as the January 6th committee makes very clear in the letter that they released yesterday that includes these text messages, uh, part of the reason they want Hannity to cooperate with the, with them is so they can get to the bottom of what Hannity knew. Um, you know, obviously he was functioning as kind of an unofficial advisor to Trump and some of the earlier text messages that we talked about indicate that he had some inkling of what was going to happen on January 6th. There are other text messages from Hannity that suggest that the White House counsel's office was really resisting these plans to try and overthrow the election and was maybe even threatening to resign uh, ahead of the new year, you know, so, so many days before January 6th. And so there's just a lot of unanswered questions here that if we could get to the bottom of them, would shed more light on you know exactly what happened not only on January 6th but in the days and weeks leading up to it. And so you know it remains to be seen if Hannity will cooperate. But again, this letter I think was meant to kind of publicly embarrass him a little bit and uh, hopefully um, you know encourage him to to voluntarily cooperate so they don't have to go further and try to you know coerce him in some way into doing that. And again, I'm speaking with Aaron Rupa, until recently was the Associate Editor for Politics and Policy at Vox and is now an independent journalist covering U.S. politics and media. He's the author of Public Notice, a newsletter which you can subscribe to at aaronrupa.substack.com. And his latest article there, where his latest article there is What We Learn from the Hannity Text Released by the January 6th Committee. But would you agree, Aaron, that it reveals that Sean Hannity is actually one of the reasonable voices that were trying to influence Trump in comparison to those that eventually got his ear as he became more and more isolated from reality. The people like Mike Lindell and Sidney Powell and Rudy Giuliani and all of those characters. I, I agree with that, but I think there's kind of a temptation to go from there to giving Hannity some degree of credit for that, which, again, I'm, I'm hesitant to do just because when you pay attention to what he was saying on his TV show, which is watched by millions of people every night, uh, you know, he was blatantly lying and saying that you know, Antifa was responsible, that there were irregularities necessitating a do-over of the election in Pennsylvania. Um, you know, so any temptation, I feel, to give him credit for being kind of a moderating voice in all of this um, is somewhat tempered just by the fact that on his, you know, his show was extremely corrosive and he was pushing conspiracy theories that he didn't really seem to buy. If you take these text messages at face value, the other thing I'll say kind of on that topic is that, you know, we were only reading a few of these text messages. I think there were like maybe five or six that were included in the statement that the committee released yesterday. And so, um, you know, even the ones that were released, I think were, ambiguous enough where it's, you know, it's hard to draw real firm conclusions about what Hannity's role in all of this was. And so, um, you know, maybe we'll get more as we go, because this is the second batch now of Hannity texts that have been released. But yeah, Ian, I mean, I do think that, that you're right, that, it, you know, it does appear that Hannity was a moderating voice. And ultimately, you know, as you also mentioned, I think, you know, he ended up being one that Trump didn't really listen to. Trump ended up, you know, kind of pursuing some of these harebrained schemes that seemed to come more from the Mike Lindell uh, faction, you know, of, of his base rather than listening to Hannity. Aaron Rupa, what chances are there of having Hannity actually testify before the committee? They're actually now considering primetime hearings. So 
uh, he would be uh, up there in prime time with millions and millions of Americans watching, along with other witnesses. Obviously, they're not going to get Bannon, but they will have, I take it, some people that will garner a lot of public interest. So why would Hannity agree? I mean, obviously, they, the committee's careful to point out his First Amendment rights, etc., and that's what his lawyer is also reiterating. But, you know, presidents have always had relationships with important journalists and columnists in Washington, you know, going back to Eisenhower, LBJ, you name it, Kennedy. So that's nothing new, but this certainly, the the, the fact that Fox News is the Pravda of Trump's GOP has obviously moved the ball enormously. We've had nothing in American history where you have literally a volunteer propaganda operation uh, working for a government or a political party. Yeah, you know, I kind of have a hard time imagining Hannity being up there testifying in prime time before this committee, but... Um... You know, this is kind of a new experience for me covering politics, this, uh, you know, having a, a select committee of, of this sort where, you know, people are resistant to cooperate with it. And, you know, it still kind of remains to be seen for me what levers the committee could pull if Hannity refuses to cooperate. You know, and I think kind of one of the stories of the Trump years has been, um, you know, this sense that people kind of have that there are consequences for just stonewalling or not cooperating. And I think, you know, we've seen on numerous occasions where, you know, people have kind of, it seems like gotten away with that, or there haven't been consequences when people have just refused to cooperate. So um, I don't really have a great sense at this point in time of how this is going to play out. Um, the lawyer who's representing Hannity, Jay Sekulow, who you might remember from Trump's second impeachment when he was representing Trump, um, released a very noncommittal statement um, responding to the January 6th committee, basically saying that they have or that he has First Amendment concerns, um, you know, about a journalist testifying in this way, even though um, the committee has been very clear that they're not interested in uh, having Kennedy testify about anything that he said on his show. What they're specifically concerned with are these text messages that he sent to the White House chief of staff, which, you know, for reasons that we've already touched upon, um, kind of stand independent of anything that was on his show because he was saying very different things on his show. So you know, I, I just have a hard time kind of imagining Kennedy uh, participating in this, but, uh, you know, I guess stranger things have happened. And, um, you know, I think, again, it seems like the, the committee really has the goods uh, in terms of having all of these text messages that Hannity at least sent to Meadows and maybe to other people as well. And so I don't think we've seen the last of, you know, what they're going to be publicly releasing at this point. And, um, you know, I'll, I'll be, along with many other people, kind of eager to see um, if they have enough to, you know, in some way, shape or form, persuade slash coerce Hannity into cooperating and ultimately testifying. But what do you think will happen, though, Aaron, if indeed they do go ahead, the January 6th committee, uh, and do have primetime television hearings like the Watergate, and you've got enormous number of the country glued to it, and they've already made it clear, the committee, that they want as many people in this country to, to find out what happened, and that's their job. Uh, they want to tell the story and reach as many people as we can. That's a statement from them. So is it possible, though, that it could backfire to some extent? You know, if you get Mike Pence up there, I don't think he's going to satisfy at least the Democrats on the committee. You know, he'll probably, you know, he's still got presidential ambitions, even though I think he's he's roadkill. He's still mm -hmm. trying to be a Trumpster. 
or a MAGA follower, and then you've got, if you get Jim Jordan up there, there's no way in the world that you're going to get anything out of him except machine gun lunacy, rat tat tatting out sure. and, and distracting everybody and, and propagating insane theories. Or Peter Navarro, who, my God, he's doing that on his book tour. So, yeah. what do you think about that possibility? Well, you know, I think related to that is the reality that, you know, we kind of already know what happened on January 6th, right? I mean, we know that in the days leading up to it, Republican members of Congress were going on TV and basically saying, you know, who the president is on January 20th depends on what happens on January 6th. So they were quite clear that it was a conflict over who was going to be president and that they were willing to essentially annul the will of the people to install Trump in office. You know, we, we had people like Louis Gohmert saying that people were going to take this to the streets and be as violent as Antifa and BLM. So kind of, you know, foreshadowing that there would be these uh, violent clashes on the streets, which, uh, which obviously came to fruition. And so, um, you know, that, that's kind of, I think, this doesn't really answer your question, but I think that's kind of related to it where, you know, what are we really trying to figure out here? I mean, I, I personally am very curious with what Trump was up to that day. And, um, you know, obviously he had a phone call with Kevin McCarthy where, um, based on reporting and some limited testimony that we got during the second impeachment trial, um, you know, that Trump seemed to be um, kind of offering apologia for the rioters. And, you know, so I'm kind of curious of, about the timeline of what Trump did or didn't do as the chaos at the Capitol and the violence was unfolding. But I think that in its essential details, we basically already know what happened on January 6th. And, you know, we're ex an extremely polarized country at this point. There's probably... 35% of the population that thinks that, you know, the election was stolen and that um, you know, they've been deluded into believing that. And so they think that January 6th was a appropriate response to an election being stolen. And I think you have the majority that, um, you know, kind of sees that event for what it is. And so um, I don't really know if there's a way in which that could backfire, you know, if Pence was to testify or other prominent officials were to, but, um, you know, I'm not sure how much new information would necessarily come to light. Although, again, I mean, you know, we see these text messages that are being released. And clearly, um, there were people, Hannity included, who had more knowledge of what was going on behind the scenes in the White House with some of the scheming that was going on to try and overthrow the election and then they publicly let on. So we don't know everything. And there's more out there, you know, that 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 will, I think, at some point be publicly available that will shed more light on it. Um, but I also think that we kind of know what happened. And so, um, you know, I think we need to kind of be mindful of that, that they basically told us in the days leading up to it what they, what they were trying to do and what they expected to happen. And it can be kind of difficult to remember that because we've had a year basically of gaslighting and of Republicans trying to say that this was about election security or that Antifa did it or it was a trap set by law enforcement. But, you know, when you go back and actually listen to what these people were saying in their own words in early 2021, um, there's not a whole lot of mystery to it. I mean, they were very, uh, they weren't shy at all about telling us what their plans were. Well, there's a clip at CNN, uh, with this uh, Irish reporter asking Trump supporters, mostly women, about, you know, the anniversary of, of January the 6th. And without exception, they all say, oh, what was the Democrats? You know, it wasn't the Trump, it wasn't the Republicans, it was the Democrats. And so the campaign, at least uh, anecdotally, seems to have worked the way that they've rewritten history and whitewashed the whole event and turned traitors into into heroes and patriots. So is there any point to trying to change minds in that regard? Or who whose minds do you think the committee can actually change? 
You know, I do think that there is some percentage of people, you know, and I, I wouldn't put myself in this in this category, but let me kind of explain the, the point I'm trying to make. Um, someone resurfaced this week a clip, and I don't know if you've seen this, of Josh Howley on, it was January 3rd, I believe, 2021, and he went on Fox News and was interviewed by Brett Bayer, and basically, you know, Bayer asked him point blank at one point, do you think Trump will be the president on January 20th. And Howley says, that depends on what happens on Wednesday, which was January 6th. And Bayer kind of cut him off and said, no, it doesn't. You know, the election, you know, the, the state secretaries of state and these states have sent along these electors and, you know, there's a process. And, you know, Howley, um, you know, just kind of kept insisting that it, it depended on what was going to happen on, on Wednesday. So, I saw this and it was kind of shocking to me because to some extent, I think some of the, the gaslighting has kind of worked on me where there has been so much misinformation and kind of in rewriting of history that's taken place that, you know, when I see these clips, it's really kind of jarring because it reminds me that it was very clear what was what was happening that week. And so, um, you know, I think back also on the, the second impeachment trial where there were a lot of videos played of the insurrection of the violence at the Capitol, um, you know, that kind of laid bare what, what had actually happened that day. And so I don't think that's a unique experience, um, you know, for someone like me, who's obviously very immersed in this stuff. I mean, I think there are probably a lot of voters out there who are probably feeling a little bit confused at this point. And so, um, you know, I think hearings could be helpful to kind of cut through some of that fog and clarify things for people. I don't, I don't know off the top of my head what percentage of you know, what percentage of voters that would constitute. But, um, you know, I, again, I just think there's been so much misdirection over this past year and so much rewriting of history that, you know, getting people under oath to talk about what they knew and when, um, you know, about an attack on our capital that was basically aimed at essentially ending democracy and installing Trump as president. Um, I don't think there's any harm in that. You know, I, I don't know politically what the consequences of that would be if there'd be perception that Congress should be spending its time on you know, topics that more directly affect people or something like that. But, you know, I certainly think there's some percentage of people that has probably been swayed by some of the propaganda that they've consumed, whether it's on Tucker Carlson's show, Sean Hannity's show, if they're listening to Trump, for whom, you know, being reminded of the facts and what happened in the days leading up to January 6th would be kind of a clarifying experience. Well, Aaron Rupa, I thank you so much for joining us here today. Yeah, thank you for having me. And again, I've been speaking with Aaron Rupa, who until recently was the Associate Editor for Politics and Policy at Vox and is now an independent journalist covering U.S. politics and media. He's the author of Public Notice, a newsletter which you can subscribe to at aaronrupa.substack.com, where his latest article is What We Learned from Hannity's Text, released by the January 6th Committee. We're going to take a brief station break at back examining the campaign that aims to bar all January the 6th insurrectionists, including Trump, from future public office. I know it's true. Oh, so true. Because I saw it on TV. I know it's true. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. 
And joining us now, John Boniface, who's the co-founder and president of Free Speech for People, who previously served as the executive director and general counsel of the National Voting Rights Institute and as the legal director of Voter Action. A distinguished attorney has been at the forefront of key voting rights battles across the country for more than two decades and is the winner of a MacArthur Foundation Fellowship Award and is the co-author of The Constitution Demands It, The Case for the Impeachment of Donald Trump. Welcome to Background Briefing. John Boniface. Thank you for having me in. Well, thanks for joining us. And you've launched a campaign aimed at barring all January the 6th insurrectionists, including Donald Trump, from future public office. So the Attorney General Merrick Garland spoke today, and of course he's been under some criticism from Democrats who feel that he's too weak and too soft on the Trump insurrectionists. Uh, let's start with that. Did you th- do you think that it's necessary for Merrick Garland to talk about the 14th Amendment clause that bars insurrectionists? In other words, he would have to refer to what happened on January the 6th as an insurrection. How does that affect what you're doing? Well, so Section 3 of the 14th Amendment, which of course was part of this Reconstruction-era amendment enacted after the Civil War, was designed precisely to deal with the Confederates after the Civil War who were in positions of government power or sought to be in positions of government power. And the framers of the 14th Amendment uh, believed very strongly that anyone who had engaged in the insurrection, meaning the Civil War, or gave aid or comfort to it, who had previously taken an oath of office, should be barred from holding any future public office. That's what Section 3 of the 14th Amendment requires. There's actually no condition or requirement in the in that provision that the Justice Department first find a conviction of the elected official or that Congress first pass a resolution. Uh, It is it is on its face. The language is very clear that if you first took an oath of office and then turned around and engaged in insurrection or gave aid or comfort to it, you are forever barred from holding future public office. That is why we have this campaign at 14.3, P-O-I-N-T, all spelled out, 14.3.org, where we are, with our revolution, calling on election officials all across the country to follow the mandate of Section 3 of the 14th Amendment. We don't uh, think that we need Merrick Garland or anyone else to be talking about it for election officials to follow that mandate, that have a duty to do so, Uh, And the publicly available evidence is there for all to see that Donald Trump incited this insurrection and is barred from holding any future public office as a result. Well, Merrick Garland did insist that the DOJ is taking this seriously and will go after anybody at the highest levels or at the lowest levels involved in uh, what happened on January the 6th. But again, he did not refer to it as an insurrection. And even though for all intents and purposes, and anybody that watched it except for those who have suddenly decided something else happened and have fallen victims to this propaganda campaign of the Stop the Steal campaign that Trump has launched and Fox and others have propagated, if reasonable people who saw what happened on the television that day, I think most people accept the fact that it was an insurrection. It was a coup attempt, and it actually came pretty close. So there's always been a gap, hasn't there, John, between the reality of an insurrection and the timidity of the DOJ and others 
to call it insurrection. I mean, to call it sedition. Yeah, no question. I think that there is a clear problem right now with the Department of Justice with respect to this existential crisis our democracy is facing. And separate and apart from our campaign to call on election officials, follow the mandate of Section 3 of the 14th Amendment, we have actually issued a call uh, for Merrick Garland to resign. We did that on November 4th of last year after many months of pressing for the Department of Justice under his leadership to start an independent task force to investigate all of Trump and his associates' potential crimes, federal crimes that they have committed, and with no indication whatsoever that the Department of Justice is engaged in that, uh, we thought it was time to say very clearly that Merrick Garland is not the person for this job at this particular moment in history. It's one thing to say we're going to go after the low-level insurrectionists who stormed the Capitol, and to even maybe give hints that we'll go wherever the facts take us. But we are, you know, one year now from the insurrection. And there's no indication whatsoever that Donald Trump or his associates are being held accountable for their role in helping to incite and plan the insurrection. But it's worse than that, Ian, because Merrick Garland came into office with an enormous amount of evidence already presented to him of other crimes Donald Trump has committed, including the indictment of Michael Cohen, Trump's former personal lawyer who then pled guilty uh, in that after that indictment by the Southern District of New York U.S. Attorney's Office there uh, for defrauding the United States, for committing a conspiracy to violate federal campaign finance laws. And in that indictment, the prosecutors, federal prosecutors of the Justice Department named Donald Trump as individual one for directing that conspiracy. So if the former lawyer, Michael Cohen, uh, can go to federal prison for that conspiracy to defraud the United States. Why has Donald Trump not been indicted for that series of crimes? And then you, of course, have the Mueller investigation, which for two years uh, investigated this question of obstruction of justice and the coordination with the Russian government. And as a result, Robert Mueller's special counsel reported uh, to Congress 10 separate incidents of obstruction of justice that Donald Trump engaged in. And the only reason why, according to Mueller, they did not indict uh, is because this president, you know, was a sitting president at the time. And the Department of Justice has a policy, which we disagree with, that you cannot indict a sitting president. He's no longer the president. And all the evidence that the Mueller report laid out is is able to be used by this current Department of Justice. But it's done nothing, as far as we can tell, uh, with that report and with the evidence of obstruction of justice from that investigation. And again, I'm speaking with John Boniface, who's the co-founder and president of Free Speech for People, who previously served as executive director and general counsel of the National Voting Rights Institute and as the legal director of Voter Action. A distinguished attorney, he has been at the forefront of key voting rights battles across the country for more than two decades and is the winner of a MacArthur Foundation Fellowship Award and the co-author of The Constitution Demands It, the case for the impeachment of Donald Trump. And he has launched a campaign the 14.3 campaign to bar all January the 6th insurrections, including Trump, from future public office. So I take it that what you're doing then, John, is you're going to all of the secretaries of states in all of the states, because states control elections in this country, 
and basically telling them that an insurrection took place, sedition took place, and these are the names of the people that you have to disqualify from ballots. Is that what's happening? That's absolutely right. And and we're now partnering with Our Revolution in, in this campaign, and we're inviting people all across the country to join us uh, in this campaign. And you can sign up at, at freespeechforpeople.org, and you can see the special webpage at 14.3 point spelled out, 14.3.org. But that is exactly what we're doing. We are going to a chief election officials, secretaries of state mainly, all across the country, uh, making clear that they have a responsibility and duty to follow the mandate of Section 3 of the 14th Amendment. And if you took an oath of office to defend the Constitution, and then you turned around and engaged in the January 6th insurrection or gave aid or comfort to it, you are forever barred from holding future public office. That includes Donald Trump, but it includes certain members of Congress who've been named for having planned the insurrection. And it includes other state and local office holders who went into that Capitol that day, stormed it, and engaged in that insurrection. So all of them are barred. And state election officials are the ones who have the authority to determine who gets on the ballot and who does not based on various different qualifications. If you're 20 years old and you want to run for president of the United States, and you file to be a president, you know, a candidate in a certain state to be on the ballot for president, you're going to be barred because you're disqualified based on the age qualification in the Constitution of having to be 35 by the time you take uh, the, the oath of office for that office. So just like that's a disqualification, so too is this a disqualification. You cannot engage in insurrection after having taken an oath of office and hold future public office in this country. So, John, how do you deal with the fact that there's a campaign underway by Trump supporters to capture the Secretary of State offices in many states? For example, Brad Raffensperger, who behaved with dignity and, and honesty against death threats, etc., to uphold the real results of the elections in Georgia, even though Trump personally called him and berated him to find 11,000-plus votes, He's now being challenged by a Trumpster, Jody Heiss. It's the same thing's happening in Arizona for Secretary of State office there. So how do you, how would you ever convince those kind of people, if they ever got elected to office, to follow the law? Well, first, I think you're definitely highlighting what is a broader scheme right now to subvert our elections going forward. Uh, and, and all the voter suppression laws that have been passed by various state legislatures are part of that, as well as the effort to effectively try to have state legislatures take over the process of counting uh, votes when they don't like the outcome of what election officials are finding when they're when they're counting the votes. But to your question directly, you, you know, the end of the road is not when a secretary of state makes this determination. The end of the road is going to be in the courts, ultimately. So let's assume for the moment there's a secretary of state who rightly uh, looks at the evidence and and understands that insurrection did occur and that Donald Trump is barred from appearing on the future ballot in that state, I'm sure that the Trump campaign will litigate that question. We will be there to help defend the determination by that secretary of state to follow the mandate of Section 3 of the 14th Amendment uh, in the courts. Uh, conversely, if in fact there's a secretary of state who decides that Donald Trump can be on the ballot, that Section 3 of the 14th Amendment does not in fact apply to him, uh, we'll be there to challenge that 
you know, we will be targeted in, in where we bring these lawsuits, but we will be fighting this out, not just with election officials to do the right thing and follow the mandate of Section 3, but also in the courts if they do the wrong thing. So then just to touch on this multi-layered effort underway by Trump's GOP to essentially, as far as I can see, create a one-party state. It could even be a permanent one-party state like what Orban has tried to do in Hungary because the, the levels of voter suppression are extraordinary. You know, before the election takes place through gerrymandering and unless they can get the John Lewis and the, the Mansion bill passed in the Senate, and I'm not even sure that that would be able to stop it because it's underway now. The Republicans could win the House before one vote is cast. And then on Election Day, they've got all kinds of, of voter suppression rules that they put in many states. And then, then, as you mentioned, they have the ability of these state legislatures to count and certify the vote. And if they don't like it, they can overturn it. And then they've got this other operation that that Bannon and... General Mike Flynn and others are involved in, which is harassing election workers so that Trump uh, loyalists can take over election boards at both local and state levels. So that's all happening. How do you feel that since you're fighting the battle to stop this, how do you see the order of battle here? And, and it looks like the Republicans have got the high ground. Well, I do think it's all hands on deck uh, with respect to this moment. I think we have to press members of Congress, particularly in the Senate, to end the filibuster and pass those voting rights bills that will protect the franchise throughout the country and, frankly, do away with these voter suppression bills. At the same time, we are involved in fighting in the courts on voter suppression laws that have already been passed. We have lawsuits in Arizona and Texas on behalf of voting rights groups, uh, and we're in the courts on, on those questions. With respect to you know the 14.3 campaign, I, I do think that as this year goes forward and we see certain members of Congress who did uh, engage in the insurrection according to public available evidence uh, seeking to run for public office again, this question will be right there for election officials to deal with. Are they going to put them on the ballot or not? And will there be litigation? Uh, potentially around it. And then certainly as the 2024 cycle kicks in, we will uh, see this again. Uh, your reference to the Hungarian uh, leader is, is is apt because, in fact, Donald Trump just the other day endorsed him for his so-called re-election in that, in that uh, election, or if you want to call it that. And that's what he aspires to be. Uh, I think Donald Trump aspires to be someone like that who's who's on the road to a dictatorship. And it's a very dangerous moment for our country. Uh, it's why we need a Department of Justice that's going to step up and enforce the rule of law against uh, all violators, including a former president of the United States. But it's also why we need election officials to follow this mandate of this critical constitutional provision, which protects the republic from insurrectionists staying in power. Well, John Duanafaz, I thank you so much for joining us here today. Thank you, Ian. Thank you very much. And again, I may speak with John Boniface, who's the co-founder and president of Free Speech for People, who previously served as executive director and general counsel of the National Voting Rights Institute and as the legal director of Voter Action. A distinguished attorney, he's been at the forefront of key voting rights battles across the country for more than two decades and is the winner of a MacArthur Foundation Fellowship Award and the co-author of The Constitution Demands It, the case for the impeachment of Donald Trump. And he's leading a campaign at 
14 points spelled out P-O-I-N-T-3 dot org to bar all January the 6th insurrectionists, including Donald Trump, from future public office. We're going to take a brief station break. We're back speaking with an expert on elections, discussing his concern that we face a serious risk that American democracy, as we know it, will come to an end in 2024, but urgent action is not happening. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Richard Hassan, the Chancellor's Professor of Law and Political Science at the University of California, Irvine. He's a nationally recognized expert in election law and campaign finance regulation and is co-author of the leading casebook on election law. He served as a founding co-editor of the quarterly peer-reviewed publication, Election Law Journal, and is the author of a number of books, including The Voting Wars, Plutocrats United, The Justice of Contradictions, and Election Meltdown. And his forthcoming book is Cheap Speech, How Disinformation Poisons Our Politics and How to Cure It. Welcome to Background Briefing, Richard Hassan. Good to be with you. Well, thanks for joining us. And uh, you're quoted in, I think, a very important uh, cover article in in The Atlantic recently uh, by Barton Galman. Trump's next coup has already begun. You're quoted saying, quote, the democratic emergency is already here. We face a serious risk that American democracy, as we know it, will come to an end in 2024. But urgent action is not happening. So what explains, because I mean, I, I share your concerns, uh, and I've interviewed a number of people on this subject, uh, that we seem to be heading towards a kind of one-party state to the sort of election autocracy that you have in uh, Hungary, for example, or even in Putin's Russia. And I don't understand, Rick, why isn't the body politic more alarmed and particularly the Democratic Party? Or maybe they are. I just, maybe I'm missing something. Well, you know, I think that uh, a big part of the explanation for lack of action is uh, is exhaustion. Uh, We're in the middle of the pandemic, still two years in, we're still recovering from the Trump presidency. And, you know, if you look at the ratings of television news channels and you look at the subscriptions to newspapers and and websites, news websites, things are down because people are checked out. They're tuned out. And I think Democrats came in. They had a very big agenda of things they wanted to accomplish. And they know that focusing more on Trump doesn't necessarily help them to gain in popularity. So I think Democrats have been in denial about the need to deal with the risk of election subversion. And of course, Republicans either are going along with what Trump is doing, or they're afraid of Trump. And they're certainly uh, not going to be leading on this question. Uh, You know, it's hard to get just even a handful of Republicans in Congress to agree that this is a problem that needs to be addressed. I think there was a real missed moment in the period right after the insurrection, right after Biden was inaugurated, when there could have been movement towards a bipartisan uh, compromise uh, legislation to try to deal with these things. But but that moment is now long behind us. 
Well, that moment actually was signalled by none other than Mitch McConnell, who, after the coup on January the 6th, or the coup attempt, I should say, on January the 6th, on, I think the early morning of January the 7th, he took to the Senate floor and talked about how these thugs are not going to intimidate us in the Senate. And then he went on to basically give the Democrats a roadmap saying that Trump is morally and practically responsible for what just happened, and you can sue this guy. And the distinct impression I got was that that he was sort of signaling, you know, let's do something about it, and nothing happened. And only, And shortly thereafter, even though the minority leader of the House, Kevin McCarthy, had condemned Trump initially. He then turned around and talked about election suppression, and 147 Republicans in the House voted not to certify Biden's victory only hours after they were intimidated, cowering under their chairs, frightened for their lives during the insurrection. So Right. Yeah, no, I mean, you look at Mitch McConnell, and he voted against uh, conviction on the impeachment charges against Trump, despite what he had said uh, right after the insurrection. Uh, I think there's a real fear uh, among Republicans. Donald Trump is by far the most popular uh, Republican leader in the Republican Party. It's very obvious what happens if you go up against Trump. I mean, even those Republicans who voted uh, for uh, the infrastructure bill are now facing primaries uh, or threats of primaries by uh, challengers that Trump will back. So he's got a grip on the Republican Party. And these Republican legislators, they feel pressure from above from Trump and they feel pressure from below from their base. Uh, millions of Trump voters believe the false claim that the 2020 election has been stolen and want to see action so that it won't be stolen again. And if you really believe the election was stolen, uh, you know, of course, you'd want to see, uh, you know, steps taken to clamp down on on fraud and, and irregularities. So I think, you know, we're in a very tough shape because Republicans uh, are not going to be partners in this. And it's very hard for Democrats to go alone. But the Democrats kind of have their head in the stand, sand. There was a quote from a Biden official a few months ago in the New York Times when asked about the risk of subversion. His answer was, well, Democrats just need to win more elections as though you can have a fair election and so, you know, and then solve it that way. Uh, I mean, the fact is that Democrats now control the Senate, the House and the presidency. And if there's any time to act, it's now. Well, but they don't control Joe Manchin and he's just let it be known that he's not interested in altering the filibuster rules and he's not negotiating with Biden over the bill back better. Right. So I think Democrats are scrambling now to figure out what they're going to do about that. And, um, you know, just over the last couple of days, Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer has been talking about um, you know, bringing uh, voting bills back to the floor and trying to get everyone to on the record on what they're going to do about the filibuster. You know, I, whether this is going to motivate uh, Manchin and Cinema to ch change their views, I don't know. But, you know, there's been dragging on for so long and, and people I respect seem to think that there actually is a chance that something could happen. So I'm waiting to see. Uh, mm. But so, so far, there's been, you know, no action. And of course, those bills would make a lot of changes in how elections are run, but they do very little to deal with the risk of election subversion. They're much more about voter suppression, partisan gerrymandering, campaign finance disclosure, lots of things that have been on Democrats' voting agenda for a while, but not really focused on the risk that an election loser could be declared the election winner, which to me is at the top of my list of concerns right now. 
And again, I'm speaking with Richard Hassan, who's the Chancellor's Professor of Law and Political Science at the University of California, Irvine. He's a nationally recognized expert in election law and campaign finance regulation and is co-author of a leading casebook on election law. And he serves as the founding co-editor of the quarterly peer-reviewed publication Election Law Journal and is the author of a number of books, including The Voting Wars, Plutocrats United, The Justice of Contradictions, and Election Meltdown. And his forthcoming book is Cheap Speech, How Disinformation Poisons Our Politics and How to Cure It. And indeed, even the gerrymandering and all the other provisions that they have in in the John Lewis bills and in Manchin's bill as well in the Senate, they'll be challenged in, in the court, so they won't necessarily come into play in any case before 2022. So let's talk about what your concerns are, given that I take it that you feel that that we have election norms in this country that are now being broken, but we don't have election laws. Well, so we do have election laws, but they're porous. And, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, there's something completely different about uh, how the presidential election is run compared to every other election in the United States. There's no other election like the presidency where, you know, we're we're conducting elections by state and within each state by locality. And then there's a whole process by which after those votes are counted, they have to be certified. And then the governor has to sign a certification that has to be mailed to Congress and the envelopes have to be opened. And, you know, there has to be a, a vote in Congress to certify. All of that suggests that there are lots of pressure points where someone who's trying to manipulate an election result could exert pressure. That's exactly what Trump tried to do in the 2020 election. And I'm concerned that he's, his attempts have kind of laid out a roadmap for how it could work more successfully in the future. And uh, as you said, uh, what this reveals is that much of our system depends on norms and people acting uh, in good faith rather than explicit rules, which suggests that one of the things that we should be doing now is changing those rules so that there are there's less slack in the system and fewer opportunities to be able to manipulate things. Well, there's also, along with gerrymandering, voter suppression, uh, and I take it what you're concerned about is state legislatures changing the rules so that they get to certify and count the vote, and if they don't like it, they can change it. That is possibly the most alarming aspect. But there's also something else going on that Bannon and General Michael Flynn and others are involved in with financing from the Overstock, former CEO Patrick Byrne and others. At the precinct level, at the voting level, they're intimidating traditionally neutral poll workers, driving them out and then having partisans elected. I mean, look at look at the state of Georgia, for example. Brad Raffensperger did the right thing, even though he was vilified and his, his family had to move out of their home because of death threats. He's being challenged by Jody Heiss, who's one of these stop-the-steal Trumpsters, and he's likely to get elected as the Secretary of State in uh, Georgia, overseeing the next election, and it's the same is true in Arizona as well. Well, so there's going to be a huge battle now in states like Arizona and Georgia, where Democrats do have a chance to win election uh, against uh, these people who have uh, embraced the the false claims that the uh, election in 2020 was stolen. Uh, I think it presents a huge challenge uh, because even if these candidates come into office and try to administer the election as fairly as possible, just giving them the benefit of the doubt, 
why would Democrats believe that they would administer the election fairly, given their statements about what happened in 2020? You know, if you're going to lie about what happened in 2020, why should we believe what you say about an election in 2024? And so I'm very concerned that the kind of skepticism that Trump has been able to engender among Republicans is going to spread to Democrats if elections are run by these Trumpists in 2024. And what a democracy requires is that you hold a fair election and that the losers accept the results as legitimate. When you don't have that, you don't have a functioning democracy. And that's really what's potentially undermined by having poll workers and election officials be those who have publicly embraced the false claims the 2020 election was stolen. So without trust, and you're suggesting that there's little trust on both the left and the right, it's difficult to see how we can function. And this surely goes beyond just changing these antique laws like the Electoral Count Act. Am I correct? The, the Changing the Electoral Count Act would help, but it's not going to be enough to deal with this kind of problem. That's, that's certainly true. So what could be done? Well, there's a lot of things that I think should be done. You know, changing the Electoral Count Act is one legal change. Another one is requiring that everyone uh, who votes in this country votes on a voting machine that produces a piece of paper. Right now, I think we have about 11, 12 percent of people who vote on wholly electronic voting machines. I mean, just imagine what Georgia would have been like if we couldn't have a hand recount of all of those ballots for presidents as they did to kind of assure that the election was sure. fairly conducted. And the same um, in Arizona, too, right? Yes, right. But in parts of Texas, Louisiana, there are parts of the country that and until recently Pennsylvania that uh, uh, have been using electronic voting machines. And I think that's a huge problem. So there's a lot of legal changes that could be made. I have, I have a paper coming out in the Harvard Law Review Forum, uh, which your listeners can find a, a draft posted uh, on the SSRN website. It's called Identifying and Minimizing uh, the, the Risk of Stolen Elections and Election Subversion in the Contemporary United States. And I lay out a whole bunch of changes, including changes such as raising criminal penalties for attempting to interfere with official election proceedings. But ultimately, I conclude that law is only as powerful as people's willingness to obey it. And if people are going to be lawless, uh, it's going to take a political movement and not just legal change in order to assure that we continue to have free and fair elections in the United States. And that means cross-partisan coalitions between Democrats, Republicans, independents, and others to assure that uh, there is uh, you know, pressure against those who would change or bend the rules or look to manipulate election outcomes so that we do not have the uh, risk to the rule of law and to fair elections. Yeah, but what do you do about the Republican Party and its apparent attitude? It's Obviously, one, it's Trump's party now. And two, even people that hate Trump, like Mitch McConnell, they're against any of these bills. I mean, when you talk about the need to get Manchin and Cinema on board, well, none of the Republicans are on board, not even the relatively moderate and decent ones like Mitt Romney. They're not but those, on board. Yeah, but those bills are not about preventing election subversion. Right. You know, those bills are about dealing with partisan gerrymandering and campaign finance reform and lots of other things, things that, sure. you know, many things I support. Right, but, but the Republicans aren't speaking out against election subversion. I mean, it seems like they would rather cheat than compete. Well, I think the Republican Party is divided, and I think that there are people of good faith in that party who 
could find a, a willingness to go along with something. For example, there have been Republican co-sponsors in the past of bills that would um, require paper ballots for all elections. So, you know, I think there is room for change. Uh, but, uh, you know, as I said earlier, it's hard when you ha don't have a party that is uh, uniformly committed to democracy. And so then you have to work with whichever members of that party there are who are willing to uh, go along with trying to push this. And there has to be, you know, even if it's only 20 percent of Republicans who strongly object to this uh, attempt to subvert democracy, Republicans need those 20 percent. And so, uh, you know, the idea would be to fracture that coalition if Republicans are not willing to go along with some form of preserving the rule of law and the the rules for conducting fair elections. So just in closing, what was the website that you mentioned where you have your paper at Harvard, SSRN? SSRN.com is a repository of forthcoming and, and recent papers. And if you go there, uh, just search for my last name. Um, uh, you H should be able to H -A -S -E -N. find H-A-S-E-N. That's right. You should be able to find the paper there. Or it's also linked on my website. This may be easier. Go, just go to electionlawblog.org, and you'll find it on the right-hand side under recent and forthcoming papers. Well, Richard Hassan, I thank you very much for joining us. It's been a pleasure. And again, I've been speaking with Richard Hassan, who is the Chancellor's Professor of Law and Political Science at the University of California, Irvine. He's a nationally recognized expert in election law and campaign finance regulation and is co-author of a leading casebook on election law. And he serves as the founding co-editor of the quarterly peer-reviewed publication Election Law Journal and is the author of a number of books, including The Voting Wars, Plutocrats United, The Justice of Co Contradictions, and Election Meltdown, and his forthcoming book is Cheap Speech, How Disinformation Poisons Our Politics and How to Cure It. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon. And to help us sustain this program into the future and assure it remains free to all, please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or publictruthmedia.org where you will find our non-profit Public Truth Media Foundation, where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And if you missed any of today's program and would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org, where we'll include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles, and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And we also encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media. And please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family, and colleagues. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another background briefing at backgroundbriefing.org. Bye for now. The guy that lived next door in 305 Took the kids to the park and disappeared by half past nine Who will ever know how much she loved them so That dark night alone in America A quiet voice singing something to me
amor la 